In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Each week, interviewing entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, financial technology, accelerators, and incubators in an exciting three-person format. Learn about the people behind the innovation. Locally filmed, locally sourced. Silicon Real. It's about the people. Cool. Cool. Here we go. Uh, this is Silicon Real, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. I'm Brian Rose. I host London Real, which is a similar format. We get three people in a room, uh, try to figure a few things out. We've had uh, Tim Ferriss on, and we've had George Galloway, Max Kaiser, uh, Bruce Perry from the BBC series Tribe. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Check that out if you'd like. Uh, but today we're here to talk about tech. My co-host is entrepreneur Colin Pyle, who runs uh, the online language school Lingos. You got the new coffee company coming up, Crew Cafe. Coming up. Uh, your Kickstarter is kicking ass, literally, isn't it? 92%, yeah. Jesus. So hopefully by the time this uh, airs, it'll be 100%. It'll be 100%. And that's okay. what, 15,000 pounds? Yeah, just 15,000. Just 15, that's no joke. Yeah, it's pre-orders. You know, it's, it's great. We get, you know, proof of concept. People want it and biodegradable pod. We saw a big, yeah. big spark when I made that update. So that's great. That's big. I was watching yeah. this Nespresso ad recently with, uh, with uh, um, what's his name? Your boy Clooney. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, and he's down in the things and picking the beans. It's really right. sustainable. And I was like, yeah, what about this aluminum thing that, yeah. that uh, the coffee comes in? So yeah, you guys bad. are going to own it. Yeah, the aluminum things. They put 10 billion of those in landfills a year. It's, I don't you. mean to like pitch this, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's pretty bad for the environment. So hey, bye my. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Nespresso now, so yeah, yeah. to talk to you. Yeah, exactly. there we go. There <laughs> we go. Awesome, dude. All right, cool. fantastic. That's good to hear. Um, on to the show. Our guest today is Mr. Alistair Patterson, who is the founder of Digital Shadows, uh, which offers a, a cyber monitoring service that secures companies' digital footprints, uh, which is also uh, their potentially sensitive information that's posted online. Uh, you also protect companies from uh, and individuals from cyber attacks. I'm sure you do a bunch of other stuff as well. Um, earlier this year, you were selected as uh, part of the uh, London's FinTech Innovation Lab, which is sponsored by Accenture, which is one of our partners, one of our early supporters that were big fans of the show. And so, uh, you know, big shout out to those guys. Now you guys have a global footprint, tier one clients all over the world. You're driving around in Rolls Royces. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Alistair, welcome to Silicon Real. Thanks. Good you know, to be here. It's, uh, it's, it's a great story. We talk a lot about incubators and accelerators here. Yeah. We've had, you know, a, a bunch of people in and we always ask, you know, are they effective? Are they good? Are they bad? And I just wanted to, to, to find out what it was like being part of the FinTech Innovation Lab. We had, um, uh, who do we have on here from there? It was, it was like five, four or five months ago. We had the guy that runs FinTech. Samad, yeah. Oh, yeah, Samad. Samad yeah. And he was saying how they were, they were selecting the companies and I think they're going to start incubating kind of first quarter next year and they're going to have a big pitch day, I think in May. Yeah. yeah so exactly. we're gonna, I think, I think up till now they've been going after, there's just been a whole lot of them. And now they, for January up till sort of May, I think they sort of really incubate. I'm right. sure you could, you could give us a little bit more. And I think, on that. I think they are um, in level 39 yeah. and they're working with all the bank techs and CTOs and stuff like that. And they're going to produce some great stuff. We're watching them. But what were you like uh, pre-Innovation Lab? What was it like being there at level 39 and, and how did it go for you guys? Sure. I, I'd say we had, a, we had a great experience there. So... You know, pre pre thirty nine, we've been going for about a year and a half, and we we had a bunch of innovation awards, we had some traction, um, but fundamentally, we were still struggling to get into a lot of the big institutions. So the great thing about the fintech lab was this was the banks coming to us and saying, "Hey, we think 
what you're doing is interesting and innovative, come and work with us. So suddenly the doors swing open, you go in, you get access to these guys, you can try out the technology. And, and it really, I think we learn more in the three months of the FinTech lab than previous year in terms of feedback, changing our product, getting the product market fit. So off the back of the lab, we ran, we ran four trials. Three of those turned into commercial contracts after the lab. So that, that really transformed our, our business. We raised money off the back of it. Um, with those reference points, you can go and get a lot more, lot more clients and, and continue to build the company. So it's hugely important for us. I think the, you know, the great thing about the FinTech lab is it's, it's really engaged, engaging you with the clients. It isn't just a, I think there's a bunch of accelerators out there that you go in and you get lots of advice and mentoring. You know, and, that's, and that's great and some people really want that. But I think for us, you know, we, we'd had, frankly, enough <laughs> sort of mentoring and advice and competitions we'd been part of. And the key thing was getting the client exposure. So to get that through the FinTech lab with the biggest banks in the world was, was fantastic. Were, were those your clients time. that you, you said you got three commercial contracts? Were those bank yeah. clients? Yeah, okay. tier one banks. Wow. So, you know, we've added to that since then. Uh, it's just, you know, that was probably the single most important thing we, we did as a company was getting on that lab. Um, but, you know, at the same time, there's a bunch of other factors that came into play. The level 39 complex is pretty fantastic as well. Just by being there, you, you gain credibility, you meet good people. And we liked it so much we stayed. So, uh, you know, it's a good place to be out there. Is, I mean, you're right in the middle of Canary Wharf, which yeah. is where all the banks are. I went out there about five months ago. It's a, you know, it's a cool office. It's a great complex. You, you'd think in this interconnected cyber world we have, it wouldn't matter where you are. But does it really make a difference when you're literally like footsteps away and cups of coffee away from all the banks and the big management consultant firms and everything? Oh, for us, it, it does. It really does. I think if you're, if you're building a, you know, a dot-com, you can, you can get away with whatever offices you like, wherever you like. It, it really doesn't matter. Uh, unless, you know, I guess there's benefits from being near investors and things like that. But fundamentally, you can pretty much run a dot-com anywhere in the world. But the, you know, the key thing with us is it's face-to-face B2B sales to, to, the, um, to these large institutions. And if you're, if you're sat miles away, they're not going to come and visit you. In, in our case, we've actually got nicer offices in some of the banks that we work with, which is it's quite amazing for a startup. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's just great. And I don't think you could emphasize enough like how hard it is to get a meeting at a bank yeah. and then to get the next meeting and then to get it pushed. It's just such... did, did you try before yeah, you entered yeah. the innovation lab? We were working with one of the banks right. and we were just kicking off a trial with another one. Yeah. But that took us, you know, about a year of, of knocking it's, on the door. Yeah, it's incredible. And, you know, if you can get in the door, you're almost certainly not talking to the right guy. So he's yeah. got to put you in touch with the right guy and you go for another meeting. And yeah. So you need a sort of jungle guide through these big organizations. They say sort of as the sales cycle of pitching to a big institution is, you know, one to three years kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is just insane from a, a startup perspective. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I only have cash flow to last me three months, yeah. let alone three years to close this account. So. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's great. That's great stuff. Were they open to, to what you were doing or were there certain people, you know, uh, the banks that, that were just there for FaceTime or are these type of people really listening or because ultimately, well, maybe not you with the cyber stuff, but some of these guys are threats to their business model, right? I think, yeah, it's interesting. We, we, we went in worrying a little bit about that. Were they just doing it for PR purposes and they wanted to look good? Mm. Um, and, and I think we were really pleasantly surprised at how seriously they took it. So obviously, they, you know, they do get some PR out of it and I'm sure they... Yeah, they like that, um, but they really did. They did their best to put us in touch with the right people in, in the bank. And if, if what we were pitching still wasn't wasn't interesting, you know, they they're not just going to give you a leg up just because it's part of the program. You've still got to do something useful for them. Um, but they were very receptive. And, and okay, yeah, from our point of view, we're we're just trying to help them in 
uh, we're not disrupting their day-to-day -day business. We're trying to support it and, and keep them secure and their data secure. Um, and, and, but, but from what I saw on the program, they were pretty receptive to even the more disruptive companies in there. So, yeah, I think very pleasantly surprised with how it went. Do you wish it had gone longer or, or, or you know, for another three months of making contacts and connections? Or, or was it, are you glad to kind of move on after that three months? I think, yes, you know, you enter any, any incubator, any competition, you've got to think about the amount of time you've got to put in. And as a startup, as, as we all know, the amount of time you've got is one of your critical, critical things. You know, it's a really precious commodity and you can't fritter it away. And, and I think you, there's a big time commitment to being part of any, any accelerator or program. We got to the end of the three months and we got what we needed from it, which was uh, we understood the value prop, we understood where we fit in, where our differentiators were, and we'd shown that, it, that the tech works. And from then on, we had the contacts. And the great thing for us about the security industry is um, everyone talks. It's quite a small community. If, if you're good and you're known for being good, then word gets around. And, and actually, they support and share information between the banks to some extent. And that's in, increasing over time. So, so getting, you know... A good tick in the box from, uh, from a few of the banks really helps with the other banks for us. So, so I think it was the right time for us to come off the programme, start to raise some money and, and just go for it on our own. Must be tough because it's nice and warm in the incubator, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Feels to like leave home. the womb, yeah. 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 yeah, it must be kind of tricky because you have to yeah. kind of make or break it right after that. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. Uh, just a quick question. I know a lot of the incubators and specifically the fintech is get out to clients and then get feedback. I'm just curious, how much did your business model change or pivot during that, that process? Or did it pretty much stay the same? We, we did, we, we shifted it a little bit. So we came in, um, you know, I think when you set up a company, you, you go out and you're trying out lots of different ideas and you end up chasing lots of different things down. I've, I've heard it called sort of squirrel mode when you're, you're just sort of looking around for the next right. opportunity and you're trying out lots of different things. So when we went into the uh, innovation lab, we had, I guess, five propositions. We were, we were hoping to get that down to one um, based on the feedback from the banks. And, and actually, the feedback we got was actually all five are interesting. And here's two that are really interesting. And, and so we're now focused on those two right now. Um, so those, those two are so firstly data loss detection. So working out what, what information the banks are leaking out that leaves them you know, either vulnerable to attack or it's actually leaking customer data or confidential information. And the second area is what we call actionable attack intelligence. So that's really letting the banks know um, who's coming to attack them, when that's going to happen and which tools they're going to use in the attack. And basically giving that, them that forewarning so they can put the right measures in place and, and defend themselves. So those are the two sort of top, top level um, you know, offerings that we ended up with off the back of the program. And we're just adding a third one around brand protection. Um, but those, those are the three we're going into 2014 with. Okay, well, that was my next question is, is, yeah. is we always ask, you know, what have you guys done and what are you going to do and what makes you guys different and why you think you'll win in this space? So you kind of described your products, which are very different products. It's like this latent print that they might leave out there that they don't want out yeah. there and then guarding them from attack by the anonymouses of the world. But uh, tell us about, you know, you guys as far as, you know, what you've done, what you plan to do and what makes you different because it must be a competitive space. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. Um, there's a lot of, particularly in the threat intelligence side, there's a lot of money going in, particularly in the US. Um, and it's something we're, we're very conscious of. You know, we, we think there's two to three years that this market's maturing in and, and there's a bit of a land grab going on. Obviously, if you're positioning well with the tier one banks, you're in, in pretty good shape. And the pleasing thing for us is we've come through a bunch of bake-offs now. So they've actually run us against all the other products and services. Mm -hmm. And it seems that our, our coverage, uh, particularly in, in foreign languages and things like that, is, is superior. And the, the rate that we, the uh, timeliness of the 
and usefulness of the alerts we provide is, is better than the, the rest out there at the moment. Um, we're releasing a big new portal in uh, February. It's going to be a very exciting moment for us. It's effectively Digital Shadows 2 uh, that's coming out. So we're going to give our, our clients access to that. So to, they'll get access to all of the intelligence we've got in the system. Um, it comes with an API, so our clients can connect to that, plug it into their systems. Um, and it's, it's really scaling up um, the architecture as well. So we can add hundreds of clients onto the platform. So really, really, that's our sort of next step. Can't be complacent. There's a lot more going on in this space, uh, but it's an exciting time for us. And what makes you guys different? What's your added edge? Is it your background or what, you know, what makes you win over like a Silicon Valley startup besides your access to the companies? And Yeah, I mean, I think where, where, we've, where we've ended up in terms of the product, it's, um, as I say, we have greater coverage, we have greater timeliness, and the quality of what we're producing is, is higher. But in terms of, of the conditions that allow us to get there, um, I think our team is, is really exceptional. Um, so it's, we've got a bunch of very experienced people who've worked in data analytics and cybersecurity. That combination of skill sets is pretty rare. Um, we've got it in spades. Um, combine that with being in London at this time, it's a great time to be here. Uh, we've got all the big banks around us. There's a lot of decision makers in, in the financial sector. So it made a lot of sense for us to focus in that area. We've got a, a pretty good competitive advantage from even just from geography. Um, I think the timing is just perfect for us as well. And, and the, the whole thing with, with cybersecurity is, um, you know, the landscape is changing all of the time. It, it really favours the startups because they're more agile. They can get in, they can change and shift and adapt. It's, it's a really rapidly moving landscape. Uh, and that's something that, that's really helped us too. You know, you say banks, and I, I wouldn't have thought it would have been bank specific. I thought it would have been like all companies that have yeah, issues. Yeah. Why isn't banks more than anything? I mean, are they more at risk or are they more proactive or, or why? It, it is all sectors. And we, we're planning to go for, you know, a whole bunch of other areas after financial sector. We chose to start with the financial sector because, number one, they come under attack pretty much more than anyone else. Okay. And uh, number two... Who's number two, out of curiosity? Oh, interesting. Um, so, I mean, oil and gas, uh, utilities, huh? pharmaceutical and biotech, um, the defence companies, uh, and, you know, and even government. And why do the banks come under attack more than anyone? I, I mean, other people would say some of those other sectors maybe get attacked just as much. But, yeah, the banks get attacked a lot, I, I guess, a number of reasons. So... Um, there's, they hold a lot of data, a lot of customer data, for example, um, which is valuable and can be sold on. Um, they, they have had a pretty bad press uh, over the last few years in particular, so there's, um, there's people who are motivated to attack them just for that reason. Um, some of the overseas um, people who don't like the West think the banks embody the West to some extent, so, and the financial system in general. Um, and, and also, the, you know, it's a very competitive space. There's you know, things like trading algorithms, research reports. They're all quite valuable uh, to, to a number of people. So getting access to those and getting competitive advantage is important for more advanced uh, operators. You know, I understand the fact that of having a digital footprint like on Facebook. Like right. if there's a picture of, um, what was it, Michael Phelps was smoking some weed on Facebook and, 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 you know, he took a lot of heat from that. So I could see how you'd want to get rid of that footprint. But I don't obviously see how, say, Barclays would want to get rid of something in their digital footprint. But can you give me an example of something you might scrub yeah. up? or This leakage yeah. <laughs> yeah, makes, yeah. makes yeah. me I, nervous. It's just a little more specific, you know, yeah. even in a general example. I mean, we, we think say, say, social media, mobile cloud, these are all great things that companies should be adopting and saying yes to and getting competitive advantage and so should individuals so we're, we're right on with that i think the the problem is isn't so much a you know a photo or something else going up on your facebook wall necessarily it's it's more um so for example sensitive documents that accidentally 
leak out through the supply chain, for example. So we, you know, we've seen instances where people have accidentally uploaded sensitive material into folders that get indexed by Google. Like a Google um, Drive by yeah, accident. Uh, yeah, for yeah. example, so suddenly... So you it's know, human error is a lot of the... Yeah, a okay. lot of the time it's human right. error. Um, and so it's, you know, it, it's not malicious, it's just accidentally something's got out there. And we, we found, I mean, w- one of the biggest examples from the last few months was a cache of 3,000 of the documents, uh, 3,000 documents for one of the banks. The UK bank uh, included the ATM security specification, and that had just leaked out onto the internet through accident, in fact. Um, and we were able to get to it before it had, it had gone, gone anywhere, thankfully. So it's, you know, these things are accessible, you know, even for, for someone with a Google search. But if you've got more sophisticated tools, then there's a lot you can find. The other sort of things we see are, are leaks that um, help the hackers break in. So if it, when the hackers are now planning their attacks, they're becoming far more sophisticated than they ever were before. And to mount a really targeted, sophisticated attack, you have to research the target in a lot of detail. Um, Just like casing a bank before exactly. you break in. You're casing Not the that joint. I've ever done that. No, no. It's exactly that. <laughs> so it's called, it's called reconnaissance or hostile reconnaissance this phase, but it's exactly that. It's casing the joint. Um, and that's now about 90% of the time that the, the bad guys spend in, in the attack or the operation is, is identifying the weak points. And that can be through usernames and passwords or the software that the banks are running, the configuration of their systems. All of this is, is really valuable data to the, the guys trying to break in. So if you can get rid of that and you can minimize that, then you make yourself a harder target. Is that something, you know, say, say that document got out there, that, that collection of 3,000 documents, and you identify that it's out there and you go to remove it. Can you really scrub that data forever? Are there so many different networks that are replicating things, not to mention Google itself, where you can never actually eradicate that? Yeah, it can, can be very difficult. It really depends or the, on where it or is. Or the NSA, maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a whole other kettle of okay, fish. We'll get, we'll get <laughs> yeah. to that later. Oh, great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, there's, you're right, you, you have to take a sort of case-by-case approach. Um, and, and quite often, particularly with the banks, they, they would rather deal with the cleanup than leave it to us. Uh, we can work in a whole bunch of different flexible ways. They have departments that worry about this sort of thing. And, and actually by trying to remove content, you can make it worse in some situations. I don't know if you've, you've heard of the term the Streisland effect, where uh, Barbara Streisland tried to remove some content from the internet. Uh-huh. It became a far bigger story than it, it ever was originally because she tried to remove it. And so you can actually have the, the opposite effect by trying to take something down. But on, on the most part, this is you know illegal material that's been... Um, uh, confidential material that's accidentally got out and, and hasn't spread anywhere and it's not a it's no one trying to spread that message it's just something that's accidentally got out and needs to be cleaned up uh, and it can be um, but but you're right there's always a risk that it, there's a copy somewhere you have to keep keep an eye out I find this field really fascinating yeah. I don't know it just seems like there's so much potential there's so much business there you know if you get it right um, but it also struck me as a business that people might, might not know they need. Like right. you might have to pitch these institutions and let them know, like the Y2K, like this is a big problem you're going to have unless you get on board now. But like they might not even know. Is, is, that, is that tricky when you go to pitch people? Or do you just pitch them or by saying, telling them look that. what I found. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting point. So we, we <laughs> have to be quite, we, we thought quite hard about how we approach this. And, and for us, we, we only ever go and look on behalf of, of a client if they've asked us to do so. So we'll say, hey, we can go and have a look for you and show you some examples, um, but we won't just go and do it without their... Well, would permission. you be liable not to report if you sound, if found certain things? Well, that, that's Especially the interesting... for financial institutions? Is there some yeah. Kind of... I mean, ultimately, what we're finding is public data. It's fundamentally open on the internet. Um, but yeah, you're right. In, in, there's been one or two instances where we found something so, 
so sensitive um, just by accident because it's come up as part of something else we're doing uh, that we have independently contacted that institution. And there's a case like that in, in court at the moment. Um, but it's... Um, Why is it in court? As there was, there was a, actually an employee of a bank um, that uh, was actually selling information online. Okay. Which is pretty, pretty because serious. it's like a, if you if it's like a crime if you come upon that crime and you don't report it now you're complicit in some way in that crime potentially with some of these things. Yeah, there's a whole raft of legal issues you have to take account of mm. as, as part of this. Uh, on the whole, because we're dealing with public data, it's um, it, it becomes a lot easier from a security and a legal point of view. We're really just pointing out things that are on the internet, um, and and that's that's a bit different from us going after anything, um, you know, holding confidential material from behind closed doors or anything more sophisticated. And otherwise, just pitching businesses that they need this service, or do they all know at this point? Oh, it's, it's interesting. So one of the reasons we picked the banks was they're actually very, they're very good in terms of their security. They're pretty mature. They're aware of these issues. Um, one, there are other industries I, I could talk about that are probably less, uh, less mature, less aware of the problem, and that we think we'd, ha we'd have a harder time convincing. Um, but we actually, we actually started out working with not-for-profits, um, and, and actually human rights organisation was our first client. Um, so we, we do work in you know, a whole bunch of areas and languages um, and, and things like that. It's, it's interesting. I think, it, I think it does affect everyone to some extent. And it's really, we just made a commercial decision to focus on the financial sector first. Why don't some of these big banks just have it in-house? Because some of the, you know, like HSBC or Barclays, huge institutions, do they not have these massive sort of IT guys and CTOs that, that should be taking care of this rather than outsourcing it? Yeah, they, they do have, in some cases, they have um, people already worrying about this. On the whole, they're using quite manual processes to go and manually search for things or write sort of one-off reports. Um, what we have is this continuous monitoring platform. Okay. So it's, it's, um, we, we supply at scale what, what they can do as a bit of a one-off operation. Um, so, so absolutely, they, they, some of them have good coverage, some of them have less good coverage. It's a bit of a range. I think on the whole, they are, they're pretty good relative to any other sector. And do they, is it a subscri subscription type model? So they pay yeah. you monthly to have access to your platform? Yeah, and, exactly. Okay. It's a monthly fee. Um, in return for that, we supply alerts and we supply reports. And we have an, an analyst available when they, they call up. If they've got a particular issue they want to resolve, we can go and look at that. So for uh, a small company, say 100 people that maybe doesn't have the budget of, of, a, of a huge bank, is it the same sort of price or is it? Just access, or does it does it vary in price depending on sort of the amount of data? I guess that you're yeah, you're we, we vary it by the size of the company basically, okay. so based on number of employees, employees. Um, and the service level that they want. But the yeah, I think the smallest we've ever done is is around four hundred people. Below that, it doesn't really make so much sense at the, at the moment okay. um, because your footprint's likely to be smaller. You can probably look at that yourself, and you probably couldn't afford right. uh, service to do it. Okay, so good yeah. to know. All right, time to get real here. We're going to hit you with some hard questions about your business model. They're not that hard. But I, I mentioned the NSA earlier, and, and it's, it's strange because six months ago, no one was talking about the NSA, and maybe you were. And uh, it's, it's just weird because now we think there is a digital shadow of everything out there, you know, potentially that could get leaked by the U.S. government. And is that something that, that goes on your mind or something you have to ad, advise institutions on when, in fact, the, the thing you're trying the most to, to let not happen is happening in a weird way? And you don't have to answer this question but you know you must come up with this a lot I mean people must ask you you know if a certain government has copies of everything how can you eradicate them elsewhere I guess I guess it's you know what are you what are you trying to protect and from who to some to some extent with that so 
regardless of whatever the NSA is doing, you still want to stop the, the bad guys in terms of the organized criminals um, you know, and, and other nation states potentially getting access to your systems. Or, um, you know, and if you're leaking that data publicly, that's always going to be a bad thing anyway. So um, for us, the, I guess the whole NSA um, stuff in the news hasn't really altered the message or the, or the business case for why you'd, you'd consider digital shadows. Um, I think the interesting thing for, for me about that, I mean, there's, it's obviously sparking a really important debate in, in our society about, um, you know, to what extent you, you want the state to, to monitor communications. And there's obviously a, a privacy trade-off versus security in that that we've, we've got to have the debate about, is it, you know, in a healthy democracy and work out where we, where we want to sit. But, but the, I think the, the thing that struck me was that despite, you know, there's all of this, this talk about the monitoring going on by the government, but I don't think people necessarily think enough about what they're just publishing openly on the open internet anyway, and they're giving to these huge institutions like Google, like Facebook, LinkedIn, and, and the rest of the, you know, the social media cohort and the cloud services and so on. So, you know, we're all self-publishing this data. If you went back 20 years and people were starting to worry about, you know, you um, being able to be tracked or being able to put, you know, I don't know, the government putting cameras in our televisions or something like that. Well, you know, if you've bought a PlayStation or an Xbox recently, you've, you've done just that effectively. You put a, a camera and a microphone in your, in your own ha- home voluntarily. And you're probably carrying a tracking device, which is your, is your smartphone. So it's, you know, it's these things that we've voluntarily done that I think is actually the more interesting thing. Um, and how we, how we protect and regulate that data from, from everyone is, is a really important issue that we've, we've got to sort out. But it's, it's the, I guess the interesting thing for Digital Shadows is, is the amount that's just public is, is vast. And, and that's, you know, if, I think one of the things we, we want to do is raise a bit of awareness about this so people are a little bit more savvy about um, what they're leaking out on, on the internet and what that allows people to do. Um, and it, it certainly, it's, it's one of the things that led us to set up the company or certainly worried me initially was, was seeing the future generations growing up and leaving these huge digital footprints behind them everywhere they go, pretty much from, from birth. Um, which is really wasn't the case for our generation at all. Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm quite glad Facebook was invented after I was at university. So it's probably a, a I had this there. discussion on London Real where it was like, <laughs> yeah. everyone's going to have such a bad digital footprint in 15 years. They're going to hire the person with the least worst right. you know, digital. Oh, you only smoke weed three times? Then yeah. you can take you <laughs> in because this guy's done <laughs> yeah. this, this, this. Yeah. But I don't know if that's going to be the case. You know? I, I don't know. I mean, I think every, everyone's got to be allowed a bit of a private life. You've got to be doing, you know, I don't think... You, Everyone's got um, pictures of themselves. They're probably a bit embarrassed about at some point and, and whatever. So I, I don't, can't see that's going to be such a huge part of future employment. But who knows? Um, you know, and, and I think it's something we, we've got to bear in mind. Um, but yeah, my, it was my co-founder, James Chappell, who's, who's you know, a lot of the brains behind the operation at Digital Shadows, who, who started thinking more from the company's point of view, what does this all mean? And all this data in aggregate. Um, and when, when you look at supply chains as well, if, if you're a company, um, one of the banks we work with has 17,000 suppliers who all have access to their data. And those suppliers have suppliers. And those suppliers have suppliers. So, you know, if you follow this down and all these guys are using cloud services, they're using mobile devices, they're on social media, suddenly the footprint of the whole organization is, is enormous. And that's, that's where we spotted the gap. Yeah, I had a guest on recently and, and he was saying, I mean, Edward Snowden actually worked for Booz, Allen and yeah. Hamilton. He actually didn't work directly for the CIA. So, you know, you think about all the people and then the other people and the people that have access to the information. And, you know, how many phone calls is it from some triad to get the information from some contractor of the NSA? That's a whole other story. Do you encrypt your emails? Do you use the Tor browser? Are you aware of your own personal security? Yeah, I mean, we, we use a whole bunch of measures and we're pretty aware about this stuff. Um, that said... 
I, I think it's, you know, you've also got to get out there and engage with, with all the tools at your disposal. So yeah, you know, I'm, on, I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, all the rest of it. So it's having some sort of balance. I think if, if you try to live in a, you know, in a complete box and isolate yourself from all of this stuff, it's, you're missing out on a lot. Um, so I believe the right way forward is, is to try and adopt these technologies, but put the right you know, measures in, in place and be, be as secure as you can be while still gaining all the benefits. And I think it's, it's really important we, we realise there's no silver bullet and, and in terms of security. So you're, you're still pretty much always vulnerable to some extent, really depending on how, how aggressive and how resourced your adversary is. Um, so it's, I think you've just got to be proportionate and sensible about how you approach security. Colin, what am I missing? Yeah, just, I guess, some advice for, for, for the individual. You know, you talk a lot about your corporates are sort of 400 and up, but yet kind of the idea stemmed from, you know, protecting from birth to, to, till you get older. So how does a normal person protect a little bit some of their digital shadow? Yeah, I, good, good question. I think the... It, a lot of it's just about being aware what, what you're publishing and what's public and what's not. And, it, and it's certainly a lot of the social networks by default used to have everything as public as possible because the more we shared, the better it was for them. You know, we're the product and our data is the product. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, one of the first things to do is review all the, the privacy settings that you've got on there, work out what you want to be out in the open or not. Be aware. I, mean, I think every time you put something on the Internet, you should assume even with a privacy setting that it might, it might become public. So if, if you're, you know, uh, Facebook decides to change the terms and conditions, uh, suddenly something that was hidden is, is now public. Um, and being particularly careful with your, your personal data, so, you know, things like your address, date of birth, things that could be used in identity theft or, or to harm you if you're a, you know, a, a significant figure in some way. Uh, I think advising your family members is important as well if, if you're a parent and keeping an eye on what, what your kids are posting online is, is pretty key. And what about keeping your stuff on, like, I keep almost all my stuff on Dropbox. Yeah. Is that a terrible thing to do? Uh, they've got better. <laughs> they've got <laughs> so, better. Certainly, I think, um, I, I've, I've not been looking at them particularly recently, but they yeah. used to have a, a public folder that was there, and, and there was a lot of stuff that used to end up in that that really shouldn't have been there. Okay. Um, but these days, I think that's off by default, and you have to enable it. They've also got a two-factor authentication option, which allows you to be quite a bit more secure using it. Um, that means that someone's got to have you know, um, I don't know if you've, you've seen the sort of tokens you can get that, that come up with a code that you've got to type in. For banks and, and stuff? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, but you can get apps that do that now or text messages. And right. it's, it's a pretty good secure way of, of logging into things and yeah. stopping someone else logging into your account. It's not foolproof and there's still ways people can get at the data, but it's pretty good. What's next for you guys? I mean, like you said, you're, you're a great timing. You're in the center of fintech innovation here in London. So it's a great way to get in the front door with a lot of these global banks. Um, what are you guys looking to do? Do you, do you need to be in more cities ultimately? Do you need to hire staff? Are you going to try to raise a Series A or something like that? What's Yeah, I mean, we, we got VC funding um, a couple of months ago, which is great. Uh, so we're growing the team. Uh, we're, we're certainly expanding as quickly as we can. And a big part of that has to be international for us. Uh, in particular, the U.S. is a huge market. We're looking to open up uh, a small office over there next year. Where? Uh, New York. Okay. It's, it's, you know, where most of the, most of the clients So sit. Mayor Bloomberg in New York, before he left office, said that London was more competition to New York than Silicon mm. Valley. I don't know if I believed him right away, but is there any truth to that? I think that was a really interesting comment. I think it's really helped to put London on the map. And uh, I, think, I think it depends on your perspective. So w- what has London got that, that other places don't? I think the... Yeah, the, the financial sector is a big part of it, right? So on our desk, on our uh, you know, front doorstep there, we've got access to these, these huge banks that you just don't have if you're based in the Valley or you're based you know, in, in 
any other part of Europe or, or the rest of the world, really. It's only really London and New York that have that concentration of, of the financial sector. Uh, so to set up a company like ours, New York is probably the only other place we, we could have had the same level of access, I think. Um, so I, I think, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going for London, though. It's a you know, great place. I think the support that at seed stage is pretty incredible in London right now. So you've got the whole SEIS, EIS uh, benefits that the government have put in, the tax breaks. Right, tax breaks. So we, we took SEIS. Um, you've got the Technology Strategy Board putting a few grants in. We've had, had a grant from them, which was great. Um, there's also... Do you have to so pay you, that back or you have to get a matching grant from the board? It's matched funding. Pic- Pixelpin got that. Yeah, well, Brian right? was talking about that. Yeah, yeah. We, we've, yeah, we've had actually now two different grants from them. They're both matched funding. Uh, and, okay, there's, there's a bit of an admin overhead, frankly, in, in administering that grant. But it's, it's absolutely free money, ultimately. Uh, and it's made a really big difference to us. It's allowed us to scale up. It makes it easier to raise other funding if you can say, hey, I've already got this grant. How so, much did you get out of the grants fee? First time was ninety six thousand. The second time was two hundred and fifty. So that's, guys that's have a huge big amount. Books, man. I know. I, it's great. It's I really Brian, great. I hadn't heard of them. I think Brian was saying about like a ten hundred grand grants a month. One of them gives. The TSB, board. I think it's per quarter, but I might be wrong. Per quarter, okay. But still, that's it's pretty. They're big numbers to get a quarter million. So you had to match that quarter million. Yeah. So essentially, you're getting five hundred. Jeez. And yep. what do you do with all that money? Is it development? Because that's <laughs> yeah, like a lot of money. Yeah. They lay it on yeah, the bed. And yeah, we exactly. all around. How are you it's getting your clients? It's like yeah. the crystal maze in our office. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. um, no, it's, uh, you said you had better offices in the banks. But. <laughs> no, we've, we've, uh, we're not spending most of it on that. It's, it's basically people. It's so, people, HR. Yeah. It's, it's and development got costs? got a great development team. Okay. And, and there's that. Uh, and then there's, there's some key analysts we've got and a few other key hires. Okay. So, so that and the venture capital we've raised goes towards all, all of that. Um, and then, yeah, future expansion next year in, into New York, we're looking at other verticals, mm. uh, growing the team. The other thing is partnerships. So we're talking to a number of uh, really big global SIs, uh, telcos, and uh, defense companies. And looking at, you know, that, that's a really great way to scale um, because they can be out there integrating our, our platform with their own. So we're, we're expecting to pick one or two of those in the new year and really focus on them. Because uh, I think one of the mistakes we made when we set up the company was in the first sort of six months, we went and talked to a lot of these big companies, thinking that we could use them as a route to market. And we learned the hard way that unless you've got your own traction, and your own sales, you, they'll take meetings, but those meetings will just lead to other meetings, which will lead to other meetings. And as I said earlier, time is your precious commodity. So you end up spinning a load of wheels and meetings and never getting anywhere. Because they want to see you successful first? Or yeah, they- you've got to bring them the work fundamentally. Okay. before they're going to really bother partnering with you. Because so, they want to see a product first? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, they've got things to sell already. You've got, to, you know, you've got to demonstrate that traction first. What's an SI? Sorry, systems integrator. Okay, <laughs> and what's an example of some SIs? So someone like an IBM, an Accenture, okay. you know, these, these big guys. Okay, all right, good enough. Um, what's your employee count right now, and what was your last fundraise, if you can tell us, roughly? Yeah, so, um, so employee count is currently 12. We've okay. got... Uh, three more hopefully starting in, in the new year and a bunch more we're going to add. Um, so as I said, we, we've been pretty lucky with the sort of grants. We had a small angel investment as well. Um, we took a uh, pretty, I think, a record-breaking round from Passion Capital for them. Uh, I won't, won't disclose the, the exact amount, uh, but that's as a precursor to a, a larger round next year. Okay, so you will have one more round. We're expecting uh, sort of third, fourth quarter next year. There's already substantial interest, um, particularly from U.S., 
and big, like as in five million plus big, as that, in like that sort of area, real, yeah. real infrastructure building type stuff. Yeah, it's it's there's a bit of a land grab, I think, over the next few years in this area, and we, we want to be part of that. And would that come from a big VC, or you know, banks are putting so much money now in sort of in you know venture stuff within the banks. You see Barclays here and stuff like that. Would they ever sort of go in with you guys and say, "Here's five million, go nuts"? They they do do that, right? Um, but I think, and that, and that is an option. We're looking at a few different options. Yeah. Um, there's obviously the there's a whole bunch of, of US VCs that are plowing money into uh, into cybersecurity at the moment, and we, we've had a, a lot of interest there as well. I think the you know we'd love to do the whole thing in, in the UK, and I think I've said it. You know, UK is great for the seed stage. I think the, the gap and, and where the focus has to be next is on that that next stage. So great, got your seed funding. Now what? And, and at the moment, you've got to look overseas pretty much. Yeah, we, we just had Halo in here last week. I mean, they've yeah. obviously raised a nice chunk of money and shown the way forward where you can, you know, raise the $25, 30000000 million, you know, to, yeah. to take it to the next level. We saw Wrightster do their kind of their IPO and raised about 20 million pounds recently. So yeah. we're seeing it happen. Um, you know, you said that comment by Bloomberg was, was kind of nice to hear. And I was wondering if, if you weren't in the, the cybersecurity business, you know, what, what would you be doing in London as far as tech if you had to do something else? And what do you, what's your opinion of the London scene right now? What does it feel like from where you are? It's, yeah, it, good question. I think, um, it's interesting, I've, I've sort of landed up in, in the security space, but I'm not really a security guy by background. And I think there's a whole load of really interesting things going on. And if there's, you know... Um, if I end up doing something after Digital Shadows, we'll probably be in a slightly different area, I suspect. And I think it's just great. Even even in the time since we set up the company, what's happened in London is is incredible. You're just seeing this huge convergence of, of startups. And I think originally there was a lot of lot of press and attention around just the dot coms and the sort of fashion and music, uh, you know, industry and, and startups like that in the whole sort of Shoreditch skinny jeans uh, sort of <laughs> hey, crowd. Hey. No offense. No, I don't wear skinny jeans, but we are in Shoreditch. And you know, and that that's uh, you know that's pretty appealing. It sort of put London on the map a little bit. But actually, there's a whole load of other interesting stuff going on now as well. And you see these sort of B two B firms coming up. There's a whole bunch out there. You've got you know the likes of Huddle, obviously, but uh, Akunu, DataSift, um, you know, Growth Intelligence, us, a uh, bunch of others. And it's you know these these are pretty serious B two B companies as well as is what's going on in the more consumer facing space. So I think I think you've got you've got all sorts of things in London now to aim at and. You know, who knows? I'm, maybe I'll put my jeans on next time and head over the other way. <laughs> Skinny jeans, and and it's the and these companies you mentioned, they're not the obvious like fintech play. They're much more nuanced ideas about data, including you guys, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the one of the hot spaces right now. I'm sure it'll be a bit different in five years, um, but I, you know, there's there's a lot of very bright bright techies in in London doing great stuff. I think the other encouraging thing is seeing people come from all over the world to set up in London. Uh, there's a great company, fintech company, Open Gamma, uh, who is you know US. Guy, the founder is from so, US originally, and they've set up in London because they believe it was better. There? Yeah, yeah, we've Kirk, got him exactly. on it in January. Yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. great. Um, so, so you know, a great example. They've come to London because it's it's the best place. We work with a you know we, we've come across some other startups who've come over from Spain, from Greece, from Italy, to France as well to set up in London. It's pretty pretty great sign for the scene, I think. And is is this space? Um, you know, crowded, do you think, in, in a certain perspective? I mean, do you see some people coming here with too many startups, you know, too many ideas, too many incubations, that kind of thing? Is there a rush into this space? Uh, I, I guess, I think to some extent there's, there's a little bit, there could be too many. I think 
there's a couple of different questions there. So on the incubator and, and accelerator scheme, it, it seems almost like for any major company now, there's a bit of a, a bit of a fashion accessory is having an accelerator. And I think, you know, <laughs> there's almost too so, many. And I kind of worry a little bit about how many are going to add enough value. The great thing about the fintech lab, as I said, was the access to clients. If you're just sort of, you're getting a load of advice from some mentors who may not have done startups before, because frankly, there's not that many to go around in London, then maybe you could, you could be wasting your time. I don't know. So I, I guess as a startup, you've got to look very closely at what you're going to get out of the program before you sign up. I think in terms of the numbers of startups, the more the better, frankly. You're going to have a bunch that fail, but you'll have a bunch that succeed. I think the crowdfunding is interesting. It's, it's so disruptive. And I have seen a few there where I think, you know, the valuation's been pretty, pretty tasty for a company that hasn't had any revenue yet. Um, but, it, you know, and ultimately, I think maybe there'll be a fair few of those that don't, don't go anywhere. And, and that might affect how many people put money in in three years' time or four years' time. But, but it's got to be a good thing, right? And the VC community could do with a bit of a shake-up in, in the UK. So good to see it, uh, see it happening. Yeah, VCs are definitely feeling it, you know, and well, we've talked about it a few times here where you can, you can really start companies on, on obviously much smaller amounts of money. Yeah. And uh, John Bradford from Techstars was talking mm. about that. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it makes it an interesting place we're in that they're in right now. And I'm sure they're really looking not to, not to get, get you know, miss, miss out on that, on that whole piece. Yeah, even, you know, like Fetty was talking, you know, about just how there's so many, so much money in that angel area. Yeah. And, and often it's tough for sort of to find the, the, the real gems and, and you have to sort of maybe kiss a lot of frogs because there's, as you say, so many companies starting and so much money fighting for the good ones, right? Yeah. So it's, yeah. Uh, it's tough. Alistair, I'm going to ask you a question we ask everyone here. And uh, this is this. If, if you could make a phone call to the 20-year-old self and, and give him a little bit of advice, it could have to do with what you're doing now or, or not. Uh, you know, what would you, would you tell him? You know, uh, you have an engineering background, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I started on the techie side and... A few things happen, I ended up more on the business end of it. But uh, what would I say? I'd say, you know, uh, enjoy it. It'll all work out. Uh, enjoy the journey. <laughs> um, have a good time, I think. You know, it's, um, yeah, it's been a, been a great, uh, great few years. Uh, hopefully, hopefully some more exciting ones to come. We, we hear that a lot. Yeah, just yeah. To, it'll, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. We hear that a lot. Um, and uh, on that same note, what's the best advice uh, you've ever received, you know, either in, in Digital Shadows or before that? Yeah, I, Interesting question. I wish I'd sort of thought about this before I came. That's right. Um, or good, yeah. you know, or good business advice that you've gotten over the I last think, year. Yeah. I, so a, a couple of people have, have said this, and originally it was actually the someone, one of my old my old boss at my old firm. But um, it was really he was really saying the key is focus, and, and absolutely whatever you're doing, uh, retain your focus on being the best you can be at the thing you're, you know, you're you're doing. You know, your business is focused on and, and absolutely that's been the key for us there's so many things you can go and chase and try and do and you'll do them okay um, but the key for us has been really narrowing down what we do get that key value prop and then nail it and don't get distracted by everything else so focus would be my bit of advice that's good and now, now you've been through this process and and i was wondering what advice you'd have for you know that younger entrepreneur the 20 year old that's listening to this or maybe someone who three years ago you know was like you hadn't decided to go down this this venture that you're in what advice do you give to them or someone that's about to start the fintech innovation lab you know what do you tell them as far as what they should do or, or, or look out for i think the um staying keep, keeping awareness up in general of, of what's going on in the scene what are the trends what's going to happen over the next few years and you know and then taking a bit of a gamble i think doing that at the right time of life is important so for me you know everyone goes oh what a risk you're leaving a 
you know, secure job and you, you were going to do a startup. But I didn't really see it as, as a risk. I mean, I, I sort of realised I could, I could go and get another job again. It wasn't going to be the end of me. And OK, I, I didn't, didn't, we didn't pay ourselves, James or I, for six months and we lived off, uh, you know, beans and noodles and all that sort of <laughs> good stuff. And even then we were on, you know, pretty, pretty minimal rations. Um, but, but fundamentally, we could still both go and get jobs if this hadn't worked out. So I, don't, I think you've got a lot less to lose than you think you do and you build this up in your head. Obviously, it gets a bit more tricky when you've got family and, and kids to support and that sort of thing. So I think do it, do it soon, do it early. You know? um, be aware it might well fail, have a bit of a backup plan. There's nothing wrong in having a go and failing. And I think I'm quite driven by not wanting to regret things. So I think if I'd got older and not done it, I'd have thought, oh, I wonder, I wonder what if. Whereas you know, I think if you plough in and try everything, then you know, what's the worst that can happen? I think for the fintech lab, it's, um, you've just got to get involved, go in wholeheartedly um, and, and don't, don't just sort of put one person on it from your company and half-heartedly go to some meetings, just go all in. You've just got to make the most of that opportunity. It's a huge opportunity. Because you must have seen some companies successful and not successful inside the fintech yeah. innovation lab and like, because they're, they're probably going to listen to this. You know, you know, what would you tell those, you know, those companies that are about to start the process you know, next quarter? I think, I think what worked for us was we put our entire team into level 39 and <laughs> we had everyone basically focused. We put... We had a few client commitments and we kept those going, but we stopped everything else we were doing. And for three months, we just focused on the fintech lab. And if you can make that commitment, I think you get a huge amount of value out. I think the companies that did less well, perhaps, were ones that were based out elsewhere and sort of rotated people in and out for meetings and things like that. Um, so I, I think yeah, you just got to go for it if you're in there. You literally went all in. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's like Texas Hold'em. Yeah. Um, what, did I, what did I miss, Colin? I, it's, it, we can yeah. talk a lot Yeah, about there's this. so much here. I, I'm, you know? <laughs> I'm curious, just a quick question, because we could go on and on and on. But where is digital, you know, digital shadows? Is it getting worse? Not your company. I mean, I mean your company is <laughs> yeah. obviously getting better. But yeah. the, the problem, you know, the Google Glass and all this sort of stuff, is this going to be a problem that you just can't solve you you it's just a thing that you just have to accept that's no, great great point you raised i think um so we basically made a bet about three years ago when we, we james and i were talking about the company uh, that the effect of, of social media cloud and mobile on the enterprise was going to be a much bigger digital footprint and and fortunately the gamble paid off and, and that has been the case i think what's going to happen over the next few years is is it going to be far more sharing actually there's not, not a, a reduction in the amount of information going out there. It's, it's only increasing. And, and you're right, there's things like um, the wearables. In particular, Google Glass presents quite an interesting challenge. Um, there was, just to, to explain that a little bit, there was a TV program recently that went out uh, and it, it focused on one of the banks. And actually there was video footage inside the bank and it included a lot of their, you know, in the background, a lot of their security methods and their access passes and things like that. And a security researcher ended up posting a blog with his analysis of their whole security system off the back of that video. Um, and they, you know, they, they had no idea this was going to happen. And if you think about Google Glass, we've suddenly got a whole load of cameras recording all this, this material, potentially in organizations, but everywhere else. Um, where is that information going? How is it secured? Um, where is it, you know, if it's being stored overseas in a cloud facility, who's got access to that? You know, there's all kinds of interesting questions about, you know, the more data you store and the, and the more you aggregate, the more that, that can, can get online. And I think the whole Internet of Things thing is interesting as well. So you've, yeah. suddenly all, all these other devices are now connected to the Internet and posting things online. This is, you know, I saw a guy the other day whose house is, is connected to Twitter 
and it'll tell him when someone comes in or the lights are turned on and things like that through Twitter. It'll you tweet know. at him? Yeah. He's <laughs> a bit mad. But, you know, this, this sort of stuff's all, you know, sure. all coming. And you think about the wearables, um, you know, all your medical statistics, your right. blood pressure, um, you know, I saw some, some wearable, um, you know, wired up socks the other day that'll it'll tell you about, you know, the condition of your feet. So, this, you know, this, this is going to be a big revolution over the next sure. sort of five, ten years and all that data is going somewhere. Do you want that to be public? There's a whole load of risk around that too. So I think, yeah, fundamentally, digital shadows of, of companies and individuals will grow. And we're going to have to think very carefully what we do to secure them. Yeah. We were talking to Arm the other day. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, their information of things is, is their thing. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, just insane where that's going to go the next yeah. five, ten years. Yeah. And you're right. The, the, the data that's going to be out there of us is essentially everything. Yeah, and it's, I just don't. It, it almost becomes a, a hurdle that is just you can't get over. Yeah, that's right. So you just kind of accept defeat. But even now, um, like every single I think jet engine and every single commercial airliner is right. like an Internet of Things and is constantly sending signals right. about every single piece of it about what's going on before flight, after flight, everything. Now, now imagine that everywhere. Yeah. Um, everywhere. I was wondering, do, will, will sovereign governments be clients of yours in the future? Yeah, in, in, interesting one. Um, I, I think. You know, on the whole, they, they have pretty good capabilities for this sort of thing, I would imagine. Or think um, they do. <laughs> yeah, or at least think they do. Yeah. I think we, we also, we take the, the ethical and moral side of this pretty pretty seriously. So, um, it, you know, we, we're pretty careful about which, which governments we would ever want to engage with. Uh, and right now, that isn't our focus. And my second part of that question, are sovereign governments some of your worst enemies? <laughs> are they attacking? <laughs> I bet they are. Yeah. Well, I think certainly from a, from a cybersecurity point of view, um, you know, I think we, we all know there's a lot of um, you know state-backed attacks underway and, and industrial espionage, um, and that's I think it's one of, one of the challenges for, for the um, you know the century ahead is is how that all plays out and how, how everyone plays nicely and how, how that in, you know who owns the internet, how's that regulated, how do, you know. And if you think about any future conflict, it's going to have a cybersecurity element to it now. Uh, so it's certainly going to be interesting to see how regulation and law is, is defined around this space. Um, it's a pretty fast-moving area. I'm trying to think, who's your biggest threat? Is it anonymous or is it China? Like, if you're like a big banker, you don't have to answer that. Sure. <laughs> but the U.S. is tapping well, yeah. Merkel's phone, you know what I mean? Where her digital footprint, she didn't know where it was. And it gets interesting, and now you have companies like Google claiming that they're going to cut off the NSA from getting their data. Right. Is that lip service to us as consumers? Is that really happening? Is that possible? I don't know. I, all I see is, is <laughs> it, Alistair's got dollar signs. I, know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's just, I need to hire more people. Because it's just, I mean, like your business could grow, you know, 10, 100,000 fold, you know, with all this stuff happening. Well, we'll, we'll see, uh, you know, we've been pretty fortunate so far, but I think it is quite exciting what's, what's coming up. Um, yeah, I think the, the point about the, the large internet companies, I think they can make quite a big difference. I think they are taking this pretty seriously. And, and I think it'll come down to what happens with the legislation ultimately as to, as to what, um, how the state behaves in relation to these companies. How do people get in touch with you? How do they um, contact you if they want to take a look at their own digital shadow? Yeah, sure. So inquiries at digitalshadows.com or check out the website or uh, at Digital Shadows on Twitter. Fantastic. Did I miss anything, Colin? I mean, obviously, we could talk about this all night. Yeah, no, I think it's good. My digital shadow is all over the place. Is it? <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, I have to think about mine. And, uh, you know, we had a guy named um, Arjun Kampfus. He's actually uh, uh, the partner of Annie Michonne, who was right. a former MI5 agent. And he was here talking about security recently. And he was just saying, you know, when he's on Gmail or Facebook, he doesn't worry about his internet security because he's declaring that I'm on there and I'm sharing you my information. But he said, otherwise, I'm on PGP encryption. I'm on the Tor browser. And he said a few things. He's like, if you think you have nothing to hide, then you must lead a very boring life. Yeah. He said that. And then he also <laughs> just said, you know, you just don't know who is going to get access to that information. And he also said by encrypting, you're making it actually harder for, say, the NSA to look at other people that are encrypting. So, uh, you know, they do crypto parties and everything. They really want to get people to take another look at this stuff. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I cool. think it's important. I'm going to start PGP encrypting. I are said you? that I will on my you? emails. Yeah. I'm going to cool. do it just to do it. So, anyways, um, thanks so much for coming. It nice. was, thanks, guys. It was really cool. Yeah, Love to see how you guys are working out. Um, it's cool to see, you know, that the that, that FinTech Innovation Lab is working because, you know, a lot of like these multinational corporations are going to come in and do an accelerator. We're going to see more over the next three years. But, you know, they bring the, they bring their own market, but they don't necessarily bring 10 or 15 different companies. And so I'm always really critical to see who's doing the right job. So yeah. um, it'll be interesting to see what, this, what happens with these companies next year. Yeah, so. and we're going to talk to them in the new year. Yeah, 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 first and second quarter yeah. next year. Yeah. So cool. Um, cool. Anything else going on? We got the great, great looking website, siliconreal.com. Yeah, check it out. It looks looks fantastic. And uh, you were going to start trying to get some guest bloggers and, and sort of try to uh, get that part of the website going and, and looking for help. We need some help. So I'm running out of time and you're out of time. And yeah, so we need someone just to help us out with, uh, you know, backend stuff, even just getting creative, booking guests, looking for partnerships. So it's a lot yeah. of fun. So uh, hit us up, Twitter at Silicon Real yep. or uh, hello at SiliconReal.com. You like that? I learned that from the sector. Yeah. No, no more info. You know, you guys can keep it with inquiries. <laughs> of course, yeah. So um, that's all good. Uh, we're, we're back, uh, you know, next year with a bunch of new guests. You yeah. know, we, we've got our third season starting next year. Third season got picked up. We so, got yeah. some good guests before the end of the year coming up. I think it's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're um, we had a few so, more. Uh, but then, yeah, 2014, we got picked up again. Yeah, no, it's great. It's all good. So if you uh, enjoyed listening to us on iTunes, we're on uh, YouTube channel, Silicon Reel. You can see all our beautiful faces. Come check out our website, etc. cetera. Uh, as we say, it's about the people. It's great hearing these stories. Alistair, thanks for coming on. I wish you guys all the luck. I think you guys are going to be big in five years. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, guys. Cheers. Right, take care. Cheers. But he was in the, uh, the back of a taxi and uh, with Peter Stringfeller. He right. went in the back of the taxi, so he from, was driving the taxi. Now, people who don't Peter know who Stringf Peter Stringfellow is, who yeah. aren't from London, could you give it a so, quick so description? What is he, Hugh, Hugh Efner of, of London? Yeah, he, he runs some, uh, some nightclubs yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, strip clubs and yeah. things like that. That's okay. it. Yeah, so, yeah. so Russell would come out with something like, uh, I have Peter Stringfellow in, in, in the back of my cab, and I didn't know whether it was his, uh, his mum, his daughter, or his, uh, his girlfriend, something like that.